Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to AOA on this Labor Day. Thank you so much for joining us and letting us be part of your holiday. We hope you're having a good holiday weekend and a safe one. Hard to believe it's Labor Day and summer has zipped by us so quickly. Coming up on our program today, we're going to look back at some uh, of the interviews we've had lately on some key issues. Ethan Lane with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association will look ahead at priorities for the coming year for the cattle industry. Donnell Rehagen with the National Biodiesel Board will talk about concerns over RVO levels. And Veronica Nye, Farm Bureau economist, will take a look at farm bankruptcies. But we're going to start it off with Paul Blyberg with the National Milk Producers Federation looking at some changes to two programs, the Dairy Donation Program as well as the Dairy Margin Coverage Program. The Ag Department is um, putting $400 million into the distribution of surplus dairy products to needy families and also boosting payments to dairy farmers under the Dairy Margin Coverage Program. Here to talk about that is Paul Blyberg. Senior Vice President, Government Relations for the National Milk Producers Federation. Paul, thanks for joining us. Let's start on the uh, dairy donation program part of this. Tell us about the significance of this and how it will work. Sure, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Uh, We're very excited about the dairy donation program. It's really the culmination of a long period of work we've done at National Milk, first with the Congress last year in the process of getting this legislation enacted. It was something that Senate Ag Chairwoman Debbie Stabenow really championed and got into law. And uh, now we've been working with USDA for the last several months on implementation. And so we're very excited to see it rolled out this week. And we think it's going to be a very important program from the standpoint of minimizing food waste, combating food insecurity, and increasing dairy consumption. What the program will do in a nutshell with the $400 million in dedicated funding that it has is it will facilitate partnerships, either new ones or existing ones, between dairy organizations, and those could be farmers, co-ops, processors, whatever, and food banks and other distributors to move a whole variety of dairy products uh, to those who need them most. Yeah, so working with, uh, say, like Feeding America, right, this really expands uh, that effort to get more dairy to needy people across the country. Exactly, and it builds on a program that was created in the 2018 Farm Bill that Senator Stabenow had authored at the time when she was the committee ranking member, and that program was a smaller targeted program that dealt with milk donation only, just full of milk. And it was modeled off of some of the donations that had gone on in Michigan and that Michigan Milk and our membership was very active in. Uh, This program is significantly scaled up from that in that it will cover, not just it will cover all dairy products, but it will be a much more robust reimbursement. It's going to reimburse for the full value uh, of the raw milk needed to make the dairy product, which is something that the congressional statute directed. But uh, it's also going to reimburse for manufacturing costs and transportation costs. And this is something we worked on very closely with USDA to make sure that we had a reimbursement that was going to work and to kind of put away, you know, combat some of the disincentives that sometimes exist here. And so we were very pleased with uh, what got rolled out. So you get uh, nutritious dairy products to needy people and you help move dairy products, which is good for the dairy industry. 
Exactly. And I think this is something we hope to add funding to in the future, right? It gets $400 million in one-time funding now, and so the program will be rolled out. Donations will be eligible retroactive to the start of last year, actually. And so we'll see how that funding uh, ends up going out. But we think the model in this program is really good and something we're going to look forward to continuing to work on in the future. Okay, so USDA will also next month increase the feed cost factor used to calculate the size of monthly payments under the dairy margin coverage program. Tell us about that. Absolutely. Now, this is something, uh, this is really the culmination of an effort we've been engaged in over a period of time as well. The last Farm Bill included a directive to USDA to start reporting, you know, dairy quality premium alfalfa because we felt that the feed cost formula and the dairy margin coverage, the hay price point was the average of all hay in the United States and didn't really reflect the cost that dairy farmers actually pay for their alfalfa because they tend to feed cows higher quality hay. And so that provision was a really good start. The previous USDA started the process on implementing this into the feed cost formula. They did a 50% blend where they folded it in 50% premium, 50% average. And now Secretary Vilsack is taking the full final step there and making it a 100% uh, you know, incorporation of the premium cost. And that could be very helpful. House Ag Ranking Member Thompson pointed this out in his own comments. This is going to be great for not just the near term in terms of additional payments to producers, but it adds $800 million, I think USDA pointed out, to the uh, to the dairy baseline going into the next farm bill. And as you know from the previous farm bill, when it comes to dairy policy or really any commodity, if you have an opportunity to add to your baseline, it's, a, it's always very helpful for the chance to make further reforms. Yeah, baseline is a key on that. And uh, this change actually will be retroactive to last year, right? Exactly, yes. So producers that were enrolled in DMC last year, as well as those that are enrolled this year, uh, will be able to get the the payments here that will make up that difference. So two significant announcements for the dairy industry from USDA. Paul, also we looked the next week, I believe the House comes back and we'll, we'll start uh, watching that infrastructure bill again. Um, what are you hearing on that? Sure. So it looks like over the next several weeks, the House committees are going to begin putting together, in consultation with their Senate counterparts, obviously, the, uh, the different components of the sort of larger infrastructure package for which they passed the budget resolution to tee up uh, in the last week. Now, obviously, there's some opportunities and there's some challenges that this all poses for ag. I think the potential for investments in climate smart ag is a really good opportunity. It's something we've been vocal on and looking forward to. Uh, some of the tax proposals are quite concerning, obviously, on transfer tax and step-up basis and what could happen there. So we're going to continue engaging on all manner of this package over the coming weeks. And, you know, the timeline is quick right now as they're talking about moving things through committees in the next few weeks. But obviously that can all be subject to change as things continue. Yeah, still kind of waiting for a lot of the details on this, right? Exactly. What we've seen so far is kind of the high-level framework. The budget resolution that was passed by both chambers of Congress essentially puts a top-line number. It gives broad direction to the different committees as far as how much money they have to save or spend or things like that. But the nuts and bolts are really going to be put in now in the coming weeks. Yeah. Uh, They talk a lot about the the highlights, uh, the the selling points, but some of the details are the points of concern. Then you got the whole budget resolution package, that $3.5 trillion. That's another issue, too. 
Well, right. So that's the the budget resolution is to tee up that large package. The Senate has passed the bipartisan infrastructure bill uh, that the House is now sounding like they're going to move sometime in September before highway programs expire, which is important because September 30th is when the highway trust fund runs out and will need to be extended. So if the House were to pass that bipartisan infrastructure bill prior to that time, they would avoid any kind of a disruption in the trust fund there. And it sounds like that's what they're planning to do. All right, we'll be one date. That's Paul Bleiberg, Senior Vice President, Government Relations for the National Milk Producers Federation. Well, coming up next, Ethan Lane joins us from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Last month, they held their big cattle industry convention, and they discussed some very important issues and set priorities for the coming year for the beef industry. And we'll go over those next with Ethan Lane here on AOA on this Labor Day. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. Welcome back to AOA on this Labor Day as we look back at some of the key stories we've been covering the last uh, few weeks. Uh, Last month, the cattle industry held their big convention in Nashville. They discussed some very important topics as well as setting priorities for the coming year for the cattle industry. And I talked recently with Ethan Lane with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. He talked about some of those issues moving forward for the cattle industry. Demonstrating climate neutrality in the U.S. cattle production system by 2040. That's a really important goal and it's an important timeline because, you know, we've talked about quite a bit on your program and and elsewhere throughout the industry over the last couple of years. We know that we're awfully darn close to, to being at climate neutral right now. We have the lowest uh, emissions footprint for cattle production anywhere in the world by by quite a bit, and we're making progress every year towards reducing that. So our focus is really on making sure that the really good story of what our producers are already doing is told and is quantified, and we start to really talk about how we can demonstrate within the next uh, decade and a half or so uh, how we get to Uh, demonstrable climate neutrality so that we can really drive that point home that we are not an impact in the climate conversation. We're an an important benefit uh, for for battling climate change. Okay, so this focuses around methane, and obviously you're not going to eliminate methane. How do you you better manage it? Well, I think part of of that, that it comes back again to continuing to quantify it properly. GWP star uh, the more the more updated measurement metric for uh, for ascertaining how long methane stays in the atmosphere is is starting to be more uh, widely accepted. Even the IPCC report that came out here in the last week or so, which is uh, obviously not very complimentary of of agriculture or cattle industry production generally, does go on to talk about the fact that GWP star is a more useful metric and one that we need to start using. Um, quantifying that and really getting a handle on 
not just volume of methane, but the fact that what we're emitting does not stay in the atmosphere as long, does not have as long an impact, I think is an important part of that, that top-line goal for our uh, sustainability metrics, which is demonstrating that climate neutrality. We're going to have to really get into the numbers here. We know that the story is there, uh, but whether it's how much carbon we can really sequester in the soil, how we can improve soil conditions to continue to, to grow that well of opportunity, um, how we can manage those methane streams, how we can make sure we're quantifying just what that impact really is, rather than taking, you know, uh, the UN's word for it or or the New York Times or whoever else is, you know, taking a two by four to the side of our industry this week, um, really demonstrating that with hard numbers and metrics, working with our partners throughout the industry and the research community and elsewhere to make sure that we're getting full credit for what we're doing and looking at every opportunity to continue to move the needle. Technology will play a part, right? Whether it's feed additives, uh, genetics, whatever well, it may be, bet. that'll help in this as well, right? Well, it, it has to. And, you know, that's something that's always fascinating, in, in, especially in some of the trade conversations where you have, you know, systems like in the EU uh, or even the UK to a lesser extent, um, slightly lesser, where they, they really focus on sort of demonizing technology. Uh, the technologies that we use in the U.S. production system are the reason we have the highest quality beef in the world with the lowest environmental footprint. That's not an accident. Um, we've, we've really optimized that system. We use the, the, the best available technology, and we have an ideal climate suited to producing what we produce. Um, but all of those things work in tandem. So you bet. We're going to have to really make sure that we're uh, leaning on and continuing to develop those key technologies throughout the supply chain uh, to make sure that we maximize that benefit and minimize the impact. Talking with Ethan Lane with NCBA, what other priorities were set at your meeting last week, Ethan? Well, you know, the big, the big discussion, obviously, throughout the week was taxes. I mean, everybody's watching Capitol Hill right now. We're watching this infrastructure package and the, the, you know, the budget reconciliation battle shaping up around it. And, and the concern in the cattle industry is how are you going to pay for it? And, and how do we make sure that they don't write those checks on the back of producers who have already had a tough enough time over the past couple of years? Um, so that was a, a probably the most heavily attended tax and credit policy committee meeting I've ever seen at NCBA, yes. which is good news. There's more voices in that conversation talking about how we make sure we position ourselves uh, to, to get through that, that fight up on Capitol Hill, how we make sure we continue to advocate for the need to preserve stepped-up basis, uh, to preserve those higher estate tax exemption levels, and important deductions like Section 179 expensing and Section 199A small business deductions along with tools like 1031 exchanges and other like-kind exchanges. You just can't take those tools away um, and, and remain economically sustainable. You know, I mean, that's part of the sustainability conversation as well, right, is we need to make sure we're, we're, we're sustainable environmentally and economically. And with as many generational transfers as we're going to see, Mike, in the next 15 years or so, we have to make sure we keep these tools in place to keep these operations viable. Ethan, let me ask you, speaking on behalf of NCBA, when you're when you're looking at how this is kind of going down, it you know it looks like politically to get the the little over a trillion dollar infrastructure, hard infrastructure package done, you may have to have the three and a half trillion or more uh, of the so-called human infrastructure. Is agriculture willing to? Uh, go with that, and especially depending on how the pay-fors are, are with that, to, are you willing to do that to get the infrastructure? I don't think that we're there yet. I, honestly, I'm fascinated as a political junkie. I'm somebody who gets to do this professionally, um, which maybe causes me to question my sanity on occasion. But you know, watching this debate play out right now, 
um, the, the choice that Nancy Pelosi has in front of her is a fascinating one. She very clearly is hearing from moderates in her, in her own party that this is not a place they want to go, that they want to they want an up or down vote on a clean infrastructure package, and they want to be able to go back and tell their constituents that they did that work. Um, she has laughed that off. She's been borderline insulting about it uh, publicly. She's called them amateur hour in talking about their opposition. And, you know, the, the, the thing we keep seeing kind of emerge here is this idea on the progressive side of the Democratic Party that this is kind of a kamikaze mission. They know they're going to lose the House. They know this is a dangerous path to go down. It's not going to be popular with the majority of voters, but yet they feel like this window of opportunity is closing. So we're, we're going to see what happens Monday and Tuesday when they vote on the rule uh, in the House for this package. Nancy Pelosi has put together a rule that is all-encompassing. It's not even just the infrastructure package and the budget reconciliation. It's the, the sweeping voting rights bill, too. So it is, it is the full package. Um, there's a debate, I think, right now amongst those moderates in the Democratic Party about whether to let the debate begin, so allow the rules to proceed, and then vote down individual pieces as needed, or take their stand right now on the rule itself. So we're going to watch these politics play out over the next couple of weeks on the Democratic side of the aisle to just see what their appetite really is uh, to get sideways with voters. Um, and we're going to continue to advocate from the cattle industry perspective about what we need and what we think is helpful and, and maybe more importantly, what we think would be disastrous for rural communities. Yeah, we'll know more next week, as you said. Uh, finally, what was the mood of, of, uh, of those in attendance last week at the cattle convention with all this going on? What would you say it, was the mood? It was really positive, Mike. It was great. I was really pleased after, you know, I mean, let's be honest, a couple years of really with good reason, doom and gloom in our industry, right? I mean, it's been horrible economic conditions, wave after wave of adversity. And I'm not saying we aren't still dealing with those challenges, but, you know, markets are moving in a better direction. The cattle facts update was as upbeat as, as it has been in quite some time. Producers, I think, were happy to be out and talking to each other and catching up with old friends. Policy committees were productive and, and amiable. Um, it, was a, it was a good meeting. It was a really positive, upbeat meeting, and I think there was a lot of uh, uh, good feelings coming out of it. Well, you mentioned markets. What was the consensus of the group on what direction to go with the uh, cattle markets? So I think that the Cattle Marketing Committee uh, had, a, had a real deep dive into the numbers. Let's, you know, it was, took some time to take a look at, at where we've come using this voluntary framework. And what was obvious is there has been a substantial increase in, in cash negotiated trade uh, throughout the five area. And that was demonstrable on the charts and graphs that were reviewed uh, during the meeting. And, and, you know, we've been kind of down in the weeds on week by week past sale, but looking at it as a whole and zooming out, boy, it's, it's hard to argue with the idea that that, that elevated line is, is above anything we've seen in, the, in, in recent history. Uh, that, was, that was positive. That was viewed positively by, by the group. I think what we've also seen and what the, the committee found is that the, the framework that we're working under is pretty narrow in scope. It's focused strictly on elevating negotiated cash trade levels, right? And it leaves a lot of other business on the table. Uh, talking about some of the transparency issues that, that have been so so dominant in the conversation in the last few months, uh, creation of a cattle contract library, you know, working on LMR reauthorization, working on some of these new reports coming out of USDA, looking at PNS oversight. Um, so what we came away with was some new policy, uh, creating uh, additional opportunity for us to start working on some of those other components of leverage. And we're really looking forward to digging into some of those along with price discovery. 
Ethan Lane with NCBA. Coming up next, we'll talk with the CEO of the National Biodiesel Board, Donnell Rehagen. Concerns the biofuels industry has about RVO levels that EPA has submitted for 21 and 22. That's next here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. All right, so EPA is expected to propose lowering biofuel usage Uh, levels for 2021, perhaps increasing them next year. Let's get reaction to that from the CEO of the National Biodiesel Board, Donnell Rehagen. Donnell, thank you for joining us. Um, I know this has to be frustrating to you because you've wanted to see biodiesel levels increased over the years, and now you're looking at the possibility of them being lowered. Well, it's very disappointing for us if this is, in fact, the way things are going to be. Uh, you know, we're as an industry very well poised to increase our production and bring more of these clean transportation fuels into the marketplace. And we kind of felt like that was what the Biden administration, you know, was looking for, cleaner transportation fuels. And so we're uh, we're definitely scratching our heads on this one. So they may be lowered in 2021. <laughs> it's going to be a while before we know, and the year is almost over. Talking with Donnell Rehagen, CEO of the National Biodiesel Board, I was saying lowered in 21, even though the year's almost over now, so that's frustrating in itself, but perhaps increase some next year. The RFS, you know, the law still specifies that there should be a final increase in 2022 of 500 million gallons for advanced biofuels, and that's a category that biodiesel and renewable diesel fit into. So we would expect, you know, at least that. Uh, but as I said earlier, I mean, we've got great potential this year, much less next year, uh, to see those kind of increases and to bring cleaner f- transportation fuels into the marketplace. And again, I think this is exactly what the Biden administration, you know, was looking for. And it was something that he spoke about on the on the campaign trail. So we're really unsure of how we get how we've gotten to this position where what he said and what he's uh, the administration is looking to do are, th- are that different. Is this some attempt, do you think, to make both sides happy, biofuels and the oil industry? I mean, we've we've gone through several years of trying to find that uh, compromise, and it hasn't been found yet. Well, you're exactly right. I, I'm, I'm sure there's some element of that. We've seen this for years with the RFS. Uh, every administration has tried to find that sweet spot, you know, that keeps the renewable fuels organizations happy and the refiners happy at the same time and you know i think from knowing a little bit about the rfs i'm not sure there's a sweet spot like that i mean at the end of the day congress said we want more renewable fuels they said that a dozen years ago and and uh we there should be increasing volumes on an annual basis that's what congress established in the first place donnell i keep coming back to this because i mean it seems so obvious. If if your goal is, you know, to improve the environment, you have these climate goals that you've set, and you're acknowledging the high prices uh, the motorists are paying, and you could lower those prices, 
by using a domestic industry that's in place and ready to produce to help you achieve both goals, but yet uh, the administration doesn't seem to want to fully embrace the biofuels industry? Well, I think it's that conflict, you know, with uh, the, the oil refiners as well, looking to try to hang on to as much of the, their industry as they can. There is, a, there is a conflict here. And so I don't think it's something that can't be, uh, you know, a pathway found uh, through that challenge. Uh, you know, again, we're talking about uh, smaller volumes, in our case, you know, 3 billion-ish gallons a year. So for a relatively small amount. Uh, when you look at the overall uh, you know, pool of fuel. And so um, it just doesn't seem like it would be this difficult to, uh, to see growth in our industry on an annual basis, moderate growth. We're not asking for exorbitant growth. I mean, and, and growth at a level that we've proven that we can do. Um, and that sends those signals to us uh, and, and signals investment into our industry. And therefore, you know, it's a great thing for agriculture as well. For a while, it seemed like this was going to be a huge opening for uh, renewable diesel. We heard about all the opportunities and the possibilities, but then again, the focus and the attention all seemed to go back to electric vehicles. Where do we stand right now for uh, renewable diesel? Well, renewable diesel is a very hot commodity at the moment, and I think will be for a long period of time. It's very compatible and, and nearly ex- identical to diesel fuel, and so it makes it uh, you know an easy drop-in replacement fuel and, and 100% renewable. And so uh, the the RFS again will create these baseline for demands, but we're seeing an increased growth in state policies that are drawing biodiesel and renewable diesel into their marketplaces as they seek their own goals, you know, to reduce carbon and improve the GHG profiles of the fuels that are being used in their spaces. That's a good point, Donnell. We talk a lot about the federal level, but uh, more and more states are doing things, and, and that's that really is a key moving forward, what these individual states do, what types of programs they set up. Absolutely. We, at NBB, we've invested some resources in our state program to try to help those opportunities uh, come to fruition, and we've seen some success this year. The state of Washington passed a low-carbon fuel standard, so that sets up the whole entire west coast of North America, from British Columbia all the way down through California, as having a low-carbon fuel standard. We've also seen success on the east coast in Connecticut. New York and Rhode Island have all passed statewide mandates for bioheat, which is the blending of biodiesel into heating oil. So the, the areas that are the states that are most proactive, uh, we're working with those states to get their policies right and to make sure that our industry is ready to step into that demand space. Coming off uh, a tough year in 2020, where does the biodiesel industry stand now as far as production and uh, plants back up and going? Yeah, our industry held pretty solid in 2020. Demand for diesel fuel, you know, held steady as uh, you know goods still needed to make their way across and around the country. And so, uh, we saw a small drop off last year in demand. Uh, this year, we're we're solid at least as well as we were last year, if not a little bit better. And so, we'll see how this year ends. But again, uh, I think uh, rebounding off of COVID, this was had an opportunity to be a, a record type of a year for our industry. Uh, this uncertainty with the RFS just absolutely doesn't help that at all. Yeah, that's a big part of this that I think gets lost, just the uncertainty. You need you need strong signals, right, for the industry to respond to. Yeah, I'm, I'm big on the signals. I mean, signals of, 
of strength or signals, uh, you know, otherwise. And, and for us, the RFS was built to be a forward-looking, uh, to establish that demand in a forward-looking manner. And so when we're sitting here in August of 2021 and do not have a 2021 um, uh, volume, and then you look at 2022 is just not that far away, um, it does create uncertainty. It creates uncertainty in the form of investors, internal investors, and external investors. Should we add more production capacity or not? But also just in the sense of, of our customers downstream of them not knowing what volumes that uh, you know they should be purchasing. Well, I think of the history of your industry, how you've dealt with this. Uh, you just mentioned uh, they're way behind on announcing the RVO levels, something we've seen numerous times in the past from various EPAs. And the fact that you you need that uh, tax incentive that we've talked so much about, a lot of times that that would go out and be reapplied then retroactively. I mean, it, just, it seems like you, it's hard to keep everything on time uh, for your industry and I would love to see if it all came together where this industry could go. Well, I, you know, I, I hate to say it, but this is sort of the industry that we're in. It's always one of a little bit of uncertainty. And, and you're right, when you stack a couple of policy uncertainties on top of each other, it can really be uh, devastating for an industry. But I'm so proud of our industry and our members, our producers that are sticking it out, and they know that they have a great product. They know that their customers want it. And they just fight through this uncertainty. They take the risk on to it because they know it's the right thing to do. And that's what makes it so fun to be part of this industry. Donnell, with tight uh, stocks, when we look at our soybean stocks, uh, tight stocks, uh, are your members or your plants across the country, are they having any trouble getting feedstock? I think there are some that are, are starting to see challenges acquiring feedstock. Some of that is, the uh, you know, there's been a lot of announcements and production capacity coming on in the renewable diesel space and coming on in a big way. And so I think that's also created some near-term challenges, you know, for feedstock across the board, regardless of whether you're producing biodiesel or renewable diesel. So, um, you know, we're going to hope that our nation's farmers have a, have a great year, great harvest this year, and try to help return those volumes to uh, to where we need them to be, and that may be a that may be a multi-year process for us. But uh, we're uh, we're expecting soybeans to be the the driver for the growth in our industry for not only next year but the coming years as well. Soybean oil is going to be uh, the go-to if if our industry is going to grow the way we need to, and so we're excited about that as well. Yep, a lot of challenges. We'll see what this RVO announcement is, and uh, I guess I haven't seen any. Uh, uh, battery-powered semis um, hitting the market yet, so I, I, it'd be a while before we see that, probably. Well, you know, there's there's some out there uh, that we've heard about them. They're they're not the most effective. But I think there's some very very limited ranges for them, and the charge times are pretty yeah. high as well. So I'm with you. It's going to be a while, and uh, we've got great products to help. Yep, yeah, sure do, and we hope that. Uh, um, more and more we'll turn to the domestic biofuels industry that we have right here in place to help uh, help meet our our needs donnell always good to talk with you thank you very much thank you mike donnell rehagen ceo of the national biodiesel board yeah i know they're working on those uh, battery powered semis but i think that's going to be a while yet all right up next farm bureau economist veronica nye joins us stay with us you're listening to aoa 
Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. We continue to look at the ag economy. Last time we talked with American Farm Bureau Federation economist Veronica Nye, we were talking about rising input costs, certainly a challenge that uh, even during this time of higher commodity prices, uh, the higher input costs uh, are a a factor for farmers to deal with. Um, Even with a strong market that we've seen for some time now, there are still economic challenges out there for some farmers. So we want to look at the, the farm bankruptcy numbers. Veronica, thank you for joining us. Uh, what levels are we at right now with uh, farm bankruptcies compared to a year ago or two years ago? Um, yeah, so, you know, actually, uh, for the first time since 2015, um, the overall national data on farm Chapter 12 farm bankruptcies is that we've actually seen a decline, which, of course, is, is welcome news. Mm-hmm. Uh, but measuring from July 1, 2020 through June 30, 2021, um, that, that's the basis uh, for, for counting. Or look, we saw 438 uh, Chapter 12 bankruptcies uh, in the U.S., which was down 24% from where we were in the same period that ended you know, June 30, 2020. So, uh, certainly the right direction, uh, though, you know, I'd be remiss to if I didn't say, you know, every farm bankruptcy that, that we see is, is certainly cause for pause and um, is uh, unfortunate. So um, not to not not to jump out with the, hey, good news, uh, right. but still acknowledging that, you know, any any farm loss is is, is unfortunate. Yeah, the good news, it's trending in the right direction. But as you said, uh, there are still those uh individual issues and uh, uh, challenges that are faced out there, and we hate to see anyone go through that. Um, So when we look at the overall ag economy, uh, another time of strong prices, uh, they're up and down a little bit, but overall certainly higher levels than we've seen for some time. That gives opportunities, but uh, as we've talked about before, the higher input costs, there are challenges. you got to still manage that right. So uh, uh, just because the commodity prices are higher, that doesn't mean everything is uh, everybody's going to do uh, great and uh, all, all problems go away. It just doesn't quite work that way, does it? No, unfortunately it doesn't. And, you know, I think when we look at regional data, it starts um, becoming more apparent what the, some of those challenges might be. Um, obviously, you mentioned the input prices, which – uh, is, is certainly weighing heavy on, on folks. But uh, when you look at this, uh, the West and the Southwest who are going through substantial amount of, uh, you know, un, uh, sort of unprecedented drought right now, um, we saw a significant uptick in those regions uh, for the number of, of bankruptcies. Um, and unfortunately, uh, we'd, one would expect that that um, that we'll probably see some more um, when we look back next year around this time. So, you know, in, in the Southwest, which is a region that doesn't tend to have a lot of, of bankruptcies, um, 41% increase this year compared to, to last. In the West, which the West is, is um, Cal- basically California, 
um, you saw an, a 13% increase. So certainly um, certain parts of the country uh, have seen a, a rather significant increase uh, despite the overall uh, positive trend of a decline in numbers. Yeah, we're reminded that uh doesn't matter how high grain prices are. If you don't have any to sell or you don't have much to sell, you, it really doesn't help you. So uh, there are some folks yeah. dealing with that. I always find one of the most uh, misleading uh, figures or statistics that are put out each year when when they come out with average farm income and they'll say well average farm income is up this year well uh that doesn't tell the whole story does it? i mean you got to have uh hires and lowers of from on that to get an average right so there's a lot of stories behind those numbers absolutely and, and you know to, to that effect mike i think what's in, also important to remember is that um one year does not a good business make. So we've had, you know, improving commodity prices. Um, and, and certainly there are folks who are, um, you know, we're all excited about that. But we can't forget that we had a number of years of lower commodity prices where folks were in trade disruptions and all of the and weather disasters that have that have been so prevalent uh, and substantial in the last several years. We can't forget about those. And so so many operations had to dig pretty deep into savings to stay afloat in those lean years. Um, and it takes a, a several years of, of good business in order to rebuild those, those savings. So, um, you know, I think we have to be careful when viewing these average numbers, um, either on the farm income side or bankruptcy side, um, because, uh, you know, one, one data point doesn't make a trend and it, we can really look at um, these, the tide turning fairly quickly uh, if uh, commodity prices or, you know, a disaster hit. And the other side of you know, high uh, grain prices, uh, if you're on the livestock side, if you're on the buying side, you need that feed, uh, that makes it harder for those folks uh, to, uh, to see a profit. So, I mean, you got to look at both sides of that coin. Absolutely. If you're in if the livestock business, either you know, um, in, um, in, in on the meat side of life, or if you're on the on the milk side, um, all of those inputs certainly add up. Uh, and you know, something that we've um, I've already mentioned the drought, but we've done surveys of our members in the in the West, Southwest, and Upper Midwest um, that are experiencing drought, and um, certainly the increase. Uh, prices for grain and, and hay that they were experiencing um, are significant. But now that they're going through drought, those um, those feedstuffs are even harder to find, which will obviously increase the cost. Um, and then when you're thinking about the alternative of grazing, um, grazing isn't as, as uh, much of an option, of course, when there isn't grass out there growing. So uh, unfortunately, a lot of our folks in, in, in that part of the world um, are going to be met with a lot of unfortunate options. Right. Kind of just point out that headlines uh, can be deceiving, so you need to look at kind of behind the headlines and between the lines a little bit to the individual situations. All right. Always good to talk with you, Veronica. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. American Farm Bureau Federation economist Veronica Nye. That wraps it up on this Labor Day. Thanks for joining us. Be safe. Hope you'll join us again tomorrow right here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.